Welcome to The Emma Gunn Show. Life's defining moments don't always feel that great when they're happening. In the moment, they can feel challenging, uncomfortable, difficult, impossible even. But with hindsight, they can take on a different shape. With the benefit of that 2020 perspective, we can begin to see how the most difficult times were a life lesson we didn't know we needed to learn. Each week, I ask my guests to share their biggest life learnings to date as we explore those difficult, swampy, infuriating times and how they shaped them, all from a comfortable distance that's afforded them the time to take the positive out of what might have seemed nothing but negative at the time. Because whether it's obstacles, challenges, risks, excuses, opportunities, successes, failures, or curveballs, they are the reason, they are the person they are today, the person sitting in front of me on this episode of The Emma Gunn Show. You know, all of those differences make me unique and make me different. And actually, yeah, realizing, coming around to realizing that actually that was a real strength, was a real, real, a real like big light bulb moment. There are certain people in society are conditioned to not think that they deserve to take up space. Yeah, I do think falling in love is a huge risk because you don't know how it's going to end. I, I have actually really realized that perfectionism comes from uh, low self-esteem, like, essentially, and that's what drives it. So we need to stop elevating perfectionism, not a good thing. How do you define a chip on your shoulder? Because is that is it just something that's your fault for having that chip or is it something that is the result of society's bias? Yeah, it's that's really tricky. I definitely know when I was younger that, you know, if the most popular girl wanted to be friends with me, etc., I'd be like so like, oh my god, you know, you feel like the chosen special one. You know, when when did fat become demonized? When did, you know, fat become being associated with being lazy and slovenly? And, you know, when did fat people become Hey it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on Us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of forty-five dollars equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month, face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active mint customers by 531-24. Get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG. I'm othered. My guest today is the author and journalist Anita Bagwandas, who has occupied some of the most senior beauty journalism roles in magazines and newspapers over her nearly 20-year career. She entered the beauty industry feeling like an outsider, determined to take the white-centric, thinner-is-better ideal perpetuated in media and open it up into something much more inclusive. Because it sucks to be an outsider, and it sucks even harder to be an outsider for things that you simply cannot do anything about, such as your skin colour. Anita was born in Swansea in Wales and grew up in the small town of Newport. She earned an MA in journalism from Cardiff University and from there landed roles on Top Sante, Marie Claire, stylist and women's health. And she is now a regular columnist for The Guardian. Though Anita entered the world of beauty journalism in order to be an agent for change, she perhaps underestimated the impact the fashion and beauty world would have on her, a girl from Wales who had never felt as though she fit in or looked the right way. In many ways, she was throwing herself headlong into a world ripe to reject, dismiss and other her. And as I'm sure we'll discuss, that was a part of her career journey she perhaps hadn't anticipated. Her book, Ugly, deep dives into why we find what we find beautiful, beautiful. But perhaps more than that, it uncovers why we assign ugly to so much, including more often than not ourselves. Welcome back to the podcast, Anita. Thank you for having me. So nice to see you. And so it, I'm so glad to be saying... 
author Anita Bagwandas because I mean I knew about this project a long time ago. Yeah, I am glad to have finished it. <laughs> I'm glad it's out in the world. <laughs> glad it is out in the world. And I think um just referencing that introduction, I think what I really took from Ugly, I've obviously known you for a really long time, was this idea. I think both of us have had this experience of entering the beauty industry because Perhaps we thought that it would make us feel beautiful just by being around the beautiful people. Yeah, definitely. I think there is absolutely a sense of that, that, you know, that, yeah, if you're around it all the time, like it will just by osmosis, you will become part of that elite. And yeah, that, that, I mean, maybe sometimes that happens, but I think for me being so far from what the beauty standard is, it just was, it was never going to happen. And actually yeah, I think, yeah, it benefited my career a lot to not be actually. And I've only re- realized that in hindsight because I spent so long trying to fit in or wanting to fit in. But actually it was that realization actually that my difference, you know, being, you know, I come from, my background is Indian. Um, you know, I'm dark skinned and plus size. I'm a goth. There's a lot of difference there. I'm neurodivergent. There's a lot, there's a lot of difference. Um, you know, all of those differences make me unique and make me different and actually yeah realizing coming around to realizing that actually that was a real strength was a real real a real like big light bulb moment how did you if you look back how did you try to fit in were there was it about changing the way you looked, the way you dressed were there any specific things that you think actually I was at that point I was really trying to put a square peg into a round hole yeah definitely I think um, quite often it was I, I, I changed the way I dressed a lot actually and um, I it's interesting I remember meeting up with Sam Baker um, and um, Sam Baker is uh, was the editor of Red Red at the time yeah and I think at this point she was doing something else and I met up with I've known her a long time I met up with her and I remember her saying to me, and this is when I worked at Marie Claire, she said to me, wow, you, look, you really look like you work at Marie Claire. And I, I thought that was really fascinating because I sort of did, I've always dressed, you know, I'm wearing like at the moment, I'm wearing like a band t-shirt and jeans. And I pretty much have been wearing that since I was like 13. Um, but yeah, there were definitely points where I was trying to dress. I almost, not even consciously, but I was dressing like everyone else to try and fit in or to try and like, portray something and I I think sometimes that is subconscious it's not even you know we don't know we're doing it but yeah I I think in each place I worked I was always trying to be something Mm -hmm. or feel like I fit in when I very often didn't and you know I really remember when I worked at women's health which was at the sort of pinnacle of it's like beach body you know that sort of era well you were the launch yeah and you know I didn't fit in I was plus size and like I didn't really enjoy the gym and I found eating you know in a very strict regimented way really hard so I yeah I just I never felt like I quite fit in anywhere mm. in any of those places it's really interesting that you say that because I distinctly I just would work in particular places and if someone was wearing something nice it would be like where did you where is that from and then you just I would just go and buy that exact thing and it was almost like colleague cosplay which is obviously really annoying for them but I think what I realized now with a few years under my belt is I wasn't doing any of the work to figure out who I was I was just trying to be something hoping that that would get me to like, I don't know, self-actualization, but it was getting me further and further away from it. All of that effort was actually really unhelpful. 
Yeah, definitely. I did exactly the same thing, funnily. I think I thought if like buying a certain bag might like make me feel like I belonged or that, you know, I finally deserve to be in those roles or, you know, have that sense of deserving that everyone else, you know, seemed to have, like seemed to have. Um, but yeah, I did exactly the same thing. And I think, yeah, it's very, very interesting. You said then about the sense of deserving as well. And I think I I look at certain people and I just think about the opportunity that they have maybe working in our industry specifically, which, I mean, if anyone's watched The Devil Wears Prada, you know that all of us at some point have had somebody say a million girls would kill for your job, especially in the early days when you were kind of on the bottom rung, if you like. And yet I would look around and see people and think, we, we, you don't seem to have worked to, like, you just seem to think that it's all right for you to be here. Like, it's like, you, you're just entitled. And that would really get my goat. Cause I was like, you don't know what I go through to get here. You don't know what I go through every day. But there is that thing of worrying about what other, someone else's experience, again, was just getting further away from kind of dealing with my own. Yeah, that entitlement, I find that really, I used to find it very triggering when I was younger because I'd worked so hard and I really like strived and like given up a lot and jeopardized a lot to be in that position. It was actually really hard for me to come into journalism because I come from like a really long line of doctors, like five generations of doctor. And that's what my parents expected me to do. And I had to really prove that I could write and be a journalist which is why I started at so young I started when I was 15 Mm -hmm. writing for like local newspapers interning on local you know local papers when I you know in my school holidays and stuff so it was a real fight like I felt like I'd had to fight for it so then when you see people just walk in because they look the part which is you know always been a very untold I think story in Mm -hmm. in magazines and in lots of industries but you know particularly in women's magazines but also because they had a great connection or like someone, you know, they went to boarding school with someone else and like, you know, all of that, which is, which plays out. It just used to make me so angry, but now I find it really fascinating. Like I'm picking that sort of entitlement is, yeah, I find it really interesting. Yeah. I was at lunch the other day with someone uh, and they were telling me about how they got into it and they were like, Oh, my boyfriend uh, used to be uh, so insert anonymous editors trainer here and that's how I got my introduction I was like god I forgot that that's what it's been like I've been out of mags for 10 years forgot that that was how it worked yeah I think there is still a sense of that but even in you know even outside of magazines and you know our sort of culture I so I've recently just been on a holiday and it was sort of like a fitness holiday and there was like different levels of tennis groups, basically of group tennis coaching. I thought this was really interesting. Um, And I have always been a bit like, I'm probably somewhere like just below like intermediate, like somewhere between like my technique, like I can play around a tennis. If you watch me, I look pretty good, but I need to work on like, you know, my skill a bit Mm -hmm. and like the specifics. And, but then I always put myself in the beginners group like always out of fear and like, oh, I'm not going to be good enough. I'm going to be shown up, this and that. And then it was really interesting. I I actually went into the sort of group above, the sort of like, I guess it was a top group. And there was a a guy (laughs) who had just waltzed in who maybe had all the sort of, you know, privileges we might assume. And that is a real assumption because I don't know exactly what's going on in his life. But, you know, he was a, a white guy. He was quite young. He'd obviously come from wealth from, you know, you could tell from his accent and, or, you know, you could potentially tell from his accent. Like, so he just had this bravado and he, like, he didn't care about being judged. And I thought that was really fascinating. So he rocked up into this like advanced tennis group 
and he was terrible. Um, <laughs> I was just like, wow, because I'd heard him do all this spiel before and he was like, yeah, I'm just going to go into like the advanced group. I'm like pretty good and I play socially. Couldn't hit a ball. I was just like, wow, wow. It was a real like mirror to me because I was like, here I am, like worrying that I'm going to bring the whole group down. And this guy just waltzes in. I just thought, wow, if only we all were given that confidence from birth as a birthright and I just thought wow that is that is fascinating I think that's what I mean like now I try and unpick it and I'm like that's really interesting that you've got that we should all have access to that but then like Anisha I'm like god I would hate to be that unself aware <laughs> there is that too but I, I definitely think there is just something I think I, yeah I think there are certain people in society are conditioned to not think that they deserve to take up space or that, yes. you know, they will be judged for taking up space. Because actually a similar thing happened in like a gym class that I was in. And I just thought, wow, this is really fascinating that some people behave like this and some people don't. And I, yeah, I don't know. I think for me, because I, it, being someone who has struggled with their confidence and their self-esteem and like feeling like they deserve to be there in those, you know, sort of seemingly elite places. I just thought, well, I, you know, I'm going to try and emulate that or I'm going to try and take that because yeah. I deserve to and I deserve to have had that. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I do find it. I find it very interesting. We're going to unpick all of this um, at length, I'm sure, during the conversation. But as I always do with my guests, I'm going to talk to you about risk. And actually, your risk uh, that you uh, shared with me before the show surprised me, which is why I'm excited to get into it. But before we find out about that specific answer, how would you describe your relationship with risk? Um, Yeah, I've got a very interesting relationship with risk because... I really thrive off it. Um, I get bored very easily. I've got ADHD, um, which can sometimes be associated with be, like taking too many risks, you know, in some cases to sort of fuel a dopamine boost. Um, yeah, so I do like risk and I do like adventure. I do like excitement. I'm not particularly, yeah, within my career, I, yeah, I, I, I think particularly in my career, I'm not particularly averse to risk taking. Um, but there are some areas that I really struggle with it. So yeah, I think, I think a lot of people are probably like that. There's probably areas they can take a risk and some places they don't want to take a risk, mm. but yeah, I think it's, yeah, it's an interesting, an interesting topic risk. Yeah. Because I think actually when you really start to unpick it, there's the really logical calculated risk, but there's also like that when you start to realize it's your insecurity that's stopping you doing something or it's self-belief, all of those things. That's why I think it's an interesting place, but which leads us into yours, which is you said that you think it's a bit mushy, but you think that falling in love is always a risk. Whether you're in a long-term relationship or it's something new, it's a continual risk to be vulnerable and to put your trust in someone else entirely. Yeah, I think <laughs> such a philosophical answer. <laughs> I, I was I'm like, Anita <laughs> I read your um, answers and I was like, Anita has not come to play. She is serious. <laughs> I love it um yeah I do think falling in love is a huge risk because you don't know how it's going to end you know like um so I'm sort of in my late 30s now and you know like people are starting like people are getting divorced who maybe got married sort of you know quite young and um you just you, I guess you just don't know how things are going to go and so to put your faith and trust in someone um I think is a really big risk. It's also a risk to, yeah, to put yourself in the position to fall in love because, you know, you might get hurt or 
it might not work out and that's disappointing and then you have to pick up the pieces etc so I, I do think it is a risk it's yeah it's it's such an interesting one um I think as well particularly if you've had maybe like a net you know I think most of us have had a heartbreak of some kind and that increases that feeling of it being like jeopardy and that it increases the sort of heightened mm. sense that it could not work out um but I think that is why it is such a risk when we do we do fall in love but like almost like a beautiful risk and almost like a sort of like putting your faith in something you know something else and someone else yeah is the risk the fact that I know I know what you're like we're friends so I know that you're very loyal I know I can sort of guess how you would approach a relationship which is if if you're in a relationship with someone it's 100% committed it's faithful uh it, I think it's the risk believing that the other person is the same at their word and then having to sort of wait out to see are they as honest as I'm being yeah I think there is a sense of that I am a bit like a golden retriever of a human in that I sort of think the best of everyone and I've always been like that I've always been quite idealistic but I, I think and I, a lot of people will probably um I guess almost identify with this as well but like I so I had a partner who um so I'm god it was a little while ago it's like five years ago how he was cheating on me and I found it on Instagram it was really devastating and it really blew up my entire world and it was I think I just couldn't understand how someone would do that it was really like because I think it's so foreign to me to behave like that um and I think for me that really not tainted but it gave me sort of added level of almost like fear around mm -hmm. falling in love and I think that is why it's such a risk it feels like an extra risk to me but you know that can be friendships as well you know I, I think I think that's underestimated like it's, it's almost underestimated and not spoken about enough but you know when you lose a friendship it's almost more devastating than a relationship because in the wider sense of things you know partners might come and go you might get divorced you might get separated you might meet someone else etc but your friends are your chosen family mm. and I think when those relationships break down it feels very personal rather than situational as it might do with a relationship I think with friendships it's really devastating and there's a lot of risk and heartbreak associated with that as well to be honest and to I don't know maybe step away from a friendship that has become toxic or that just isn't working because you're in different spaces or whatever but yeah I think I think there is a lot of risk involved in all, all our sort of personal relationships. I think it's so interesting you talk about friendships because you're right. We we simply don't talk about it. And I remember having uh, the psychotherapist Julia Samuel on the podcast and talking about how particularly for women, when female friendships break down, it can be as devastating as a divorce. And yet, if you phoned me up and said, Ems, do you want to meet for coffee? My relationship's broken down. I'd be like, yeah, wh whatever you need. And it would just be, there'd be, right, you've got the floor. But if you phone me up and said, I've fallen out with a friend, it would be a more muted response, even though I've been through it and I know how painful it is. I don't think that we've reached that point yet where we really fully understand how uh, how heartbreaking losing that friendship can be. And actually, I like for, for me personally, in my experience of it, you feel as though you're walking around with a layer of skin missing. You feel as though you've sort of lost this protective layer between you and the world. I've found it really really difficult and yet we just don't really open up about it no we don't we don't and 
yeah it is it's is really tough you know I've like I definitely have had points in my life where I felt very betrayed by friends or you know and it's really shocking and because I yeah I don't know it's it's a very different feeling but mm-hmm. it it feels like this horrible sickness when you when you have that like a misunderstanding with a friend even if it's just like a small thing like even now it like it feels immediately would make me feel sick and it's yeah I think there is a real beauty to friendships that we definitely need to explore more and investigate more and yeah spend more time celebrating I think actually yeah yeah maybe I need to do a solo episode or something on a or something about friendship breakups because everyone I've spoken to has gone through it but everyone who I've spoken to says but I didn't really talk about it I kind of like kept it a bit hidden I only told a few people which yeah means it's ripe for the unpicking (laughs) yeah it's like a sort of weird like hidden trauma that we don't express or talk about You sort of, we minimize it before, even yeah. though it's massive, which is really weird. Um, you've already mentioned perfectionism, but when I asked you about the recurring excuse you make for yourself, perfectionism came up. But again, because you are, you are an eater and you answer things so perfectly, you said, I tend to put things off until I feel I'm ready or things are perfect. But I think that's just an excuse for not going for things when they're imperfect and risking it more. And then you said, which I thought was great. It's a fear of judgment and also a control thing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I really struggle with perfectionism. And I think people use perfectionism as sort of a a bit of a like, you know, I'm so, you know, I'm just a perfectionist. And, you know, I like, I just like everything to be perfect. And there might be some people who are like that and that don't take it too far. But I I have actually really realized that perfectionism comes from uh, low self-esteem, like essentially. And that's what drives it. So we need to stop elevating perfectionism not a good thing not something you should say in an interview answer because I think that's where it's often frequently used you know you know what 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 would you say is a negative and then someone will be like oh I'm a perfectionist so sometimes I just do everything so well and actually that's not a good thing because you will just burn out and yeah I am testament because that's happened to me multiple times in my life but yeah the perfectionism thing I mean I took six months longer to write my book ugly than I probably should have because I was such a perfectionist with the research and I kept like you know I had made I'd found examples to make my points and I'd uncovered different bits of history and you know or you know things that had proved my point but I just kept going and going and going because I was like what if there's something more what if I've missed something and then if you look almost at the level below that it's like what if somebody says that I'm wrong Mm -hmm. what if someone calls me out because I haven't done enough research what will people think and that is the level beneath it and it's very hard to see that in the moment when you're very caught up with something because you're just in this sort of panic but now I you know now the book has been out for a couple of months I can step back and go no that was why I was doing that because I was so worried and yeah it's the perfectionism thing is really hard because you know I do think and I do believe that putting good quality I do believe in putting good quality things out there Mm -hmm. and I think particularly at the moment I think there is a real I think there is a sort of lack of quality control with all the content that's out there. It's like, you know, everyone is doing everything and that's great because everyone should have a voice. That's amazing. But are you talking specifically about journalists, like media? Rather um, than... Yeah, I mean, everything, I think. I think it happens in podcasts. You know, sometimes I like search for a topic on a podcast. <laughs> I mean, obviously not. <laughs> but like, you know, I search for a topic on pod, like to, to learn about something on podcasts. And sometimes, you know, the shit that 
comes out like the shit that people record i'm like that didn't need to be a podcast you've wasted your time that's fucking terrible but like you know great like i want to caveat that but saying i don't want to censor anyone but i do think there needs to be a level of quality you know Mm. for ourselves but also for the you know if you're doing a podcast is for somebody else there needs to be a level of quality and i feel that way about journalism i feel that way about books i feel that way about everything that is everything you know because you don't want a surgeon that isn't putting everything into it you know like it's it should be across everything but then I think there is a tipping point where you can go too far and over deliver and overperform, and that's when it can tip into perfectionism like it's really hard to control that and to manage that because you know sometimes it is others expectations that make us drive into that sometimes it is like you know the fears that I had of you know which is actually rejection, you know, it's a fear of being someone rejecting what mm-hmm. I've written or my ideas. There's that side of it. You know, there are so many different sides of it. It might be, you know, it might stem from childhood. I think mine, because I have had to really unpick it. I think mine has definitely stemmed from, you know, growing up in an Indian culture where everyone worked really hard and had to get the best grades. And I didn't, you know, I was a very average student I was not particularly great at academics because I you know I had undiagnosed ADHD ADHD and I couldn't focus in lessons I would always get bored and like start doodling or do something else or like look out the window and yeah I I grew but I very much grew up you know having to like if you if you got like 90% in a test it'd be like so what's wrong what did you do wrong for the 10% you know it, that is very much a part for, of Indian culture for a lot of people and you know I'd say actually wider Asian culture so yeah, that is part of where that perfectionism comes from, I think. And I have gone over and above, over and above during my life to try and like almost mask any, you know, any sort of, I guess, insecurities I had by just being like, yeah, I, if I'm the best at this, then nobody's going to reject me or say anything bad about me or, you know, criticize me in any way. But there is a, p- a point where you can do that. But then there is a point where you will just keep burning yourself out or you it will come to a crisis point. Mm. And I think that's definitely what's happened to me a couple of times in my life. I think it also is this idea that there's no respite from criticism. So you talking about the culture, so you get 90%, what happened with the other 10%, 10% Anita, but then we are in a school system from a very young age that points out what you don't know and uh, sort of elevates that as the thing that you need to work on rather than celebrating what you do know and then I think as well in the age of social media my god you put some content out there and someone is going to point out the thing that you don't know or someone that you haven't included and so I just at the moment it does feel like there is just even for your average Joe there's just no respite from criticism and that's hard yeah absolutely I mean and our brains are like wired to focus in on those negatives as well, which is really hard because you're trying to re you're almost trying to like rewire or like bypass biology, you know, mm. and it is really hard and we shouldn't have to, we shouldn't have to deal with that. I don't know what will change to shift humanity into not saying awful things to people on the internet, you know, like it's such a huge topic, but mm. yeah, I think particularly, you know, as journalists and, you know, women of color do statistically receive more negativity on the internet than other people do and um and uh, yeah I just think it's it's such a hard thing to navigate because what can you do you either have to deal with it or you're silenced and that should never be the case so it is it's very tricky and for you did that 
did that always lead to this sort of burnout? Did it lead to sort of overdoing it and then having to recover? Yeah, it always has done, but I only started to burn out in my 30s. So I think I could really deal with it. And I used to really thrive off the adrenaline of deadlines and working on Mm. weekly magazines and, you know, not going to sleep at night and, you know, doing all-nighters. Actually, not always work all-nighters, sometimes, you know, party all-nighters and just, you know, just that like, go, 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 go the excitement of working seven days a week or, you know, whatever it was because you loved what you were doing and it was exciting and it felt yeah. like vital and like energizing. But there was definitely a point, I think in my sort of mid thirties, it started to unravel where I was like, I'm just exhausted and I can't cope with this. This is just too much. I can't say no. So, it, you know, boundaries come into that as well. Yeah. I don't feel like I can say no to things. I don't feel like I can ask for more, you know, more money. I don't feel like I can ask for more time. I don't feel like I can say no when my boss is saying, can you do these like 12 million things all at once? So, yeah, I think I think there is a point where that, you know, that sort of elastic band, I guess, is stretched so much that it starts to snap and starts to fray. And that definitely started to happen to me in my 30s. Mm. Do you think there was also a point where you realised that everyone else is probably going through something similar. I think for a long time, I thought that particularly in jobs, I thought that my superiors were my superiors because they were on top of their their shit. And then you realize looking back, oh, actually I was putting quite a lot of demands on them, but I don't think they were any more mentally stable or emotionally secure as I was at the time. And so they couldn't actually do what I was hoping that they would do. Yeah, I can definitely see that. I think there were a couple of jobs in particular where, you know, my bosses weren't great. And I now can see that actually they were being put upon immensely. Mm. And it's given me like, it's given me the space to forgive them actually in in some ways, because I definitely was harboring quite a lot of anger. In some some ways, but not completely. In some ways, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) very Capricorn very grudgy um <laughs> I'm trying to let it go but yeah, yeah, yeah like I have been able to go you know what I get it mm-hmm. you were in a terrible space too I get it um but then on the flip side of that there are some people who you know don't take things so that you know they they can say no and they can go mm-hmm. yeah I can do that but you know what my working hours are nine to five five days a week I'm not going to answer emails outside of that. I'm not going to do this outside of that. And they do have really good boundaries around stuff. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I think, I think if we do struggle with stuff, it's really good to look to those people and just see how they do things. And yeah. And just sort of try and emulate that because, you know, we don't, nobody deserves to be burnt out and it's a horrible feeling burnout and Mm. we sort of throw it around, but I've had burnout now for sort of a year and there have been points where I've had to write, you know, 10, when I was doing sort of the promotion, the initial promotion when the hardback of the book came out, I was writing sort of like 10 features, like big meaty features a week, doing radio, doing podcasts, doing like, it was really intense. And I was having to just go, 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 go. After having just finished very intense edits on the book, because I couldn't let it go. Mm. I literally was tweaking things half an hour before it went to print. Um, (laughs) And yeah, I was exhausted. I was just so exhausted that, I couldn't even like, I, I get to a point where I can't even see any words on a screen and it's really terrifying as a writer because wow. you're like, oh God, oh God. And it's, it's, yeah, it, it just, nobody deserves to get to that point, but it's really hard to shift burnout. There's no like magic formula. 
like I've I've done so much research into it for myself because I'm like I don't want to get into this position again I don't want to feel like this again but also how do I get out of it because I can't remember what life was like before this feeling and it yeah it's weird because it I don't think it feels like depression but it's like numb mm. very numb and certain things happened during during the last year that should have had a big emotional response for me just felt nothing and it's almost like a lack of enjoyment or a lack of finding joy and the things I used to enjoy I was just like no, I don't really is it anhedonia oh I don't know I haven't heard that phrase it's a form of depression where you just don't you I don't know the definition now but it's mm. essentially like you just can't find the joy in life but it sounds it sounds like there are some symmetries but yeah. obviously stimulated by different causes yeah it was yeah I did I definitely you know I'm still in that phase a little bit if I'm honest I have just had a holiday and that's definitely helped Mm. um but yeah I think it is a a longer process of getting into really good habits like putting your like well-being at the top of your to-do list which is really like some people find that very easy um and I've got friends who find that really, really easy. You know, they'll they'll be like, oh, no, I can't see you that night because I'm going to the gym. And they'll like safeguard that time, whatever. I don't do that. Like if my friend's like, oh, I really want to hang out on Friday night. I'm like, yeah, cool. Cancel, cancel spinning. You know, it's because it, it is, I guess, a form of people pleasing in some ways. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think it's, it's really hard. I don't. Yeah, sadly, I don't have any, the, all the answers for burnout. But I know what I'm doing is to take regular holidays, try and stick to regular working hours while I am in a burnt out state I'm trying to compress my hours so I'm trying to work sort of like eight to four mm-hmm. not look at things outside of that tell people you're burnt out as well so that you know they can manage their expectations that they can give you a bit more time there's always a bit more time to do things you know like I think I really like it actually when people you know I've got you know when I commission writers um uh, I you know, I did, it doesn't matter to me when they come back to me and say, actually, can I have another day? Can I have a few more days? Because realistically, it's fine. It's not the end of the world, generally speaking. So, yeah, I think it's just being almost like brave enough to ask for those things. Hmm. Um. So just to recap for anyone who might be listening, actually, because I just it would be bad of me to move on without saying it. So for you, burnout is sort of descending into a state of numbness. And that's yeah, a pretty numbness. slow descent. Yeah, it almost creeps. It's, it has crept up on me because I was working seven days a week and was mm. very anxious, very stressed out, and was just the high stakes project. Yeah, it's the stakes, it's the failures, that risk of failure mm. was keeping me in this very like anxious, agitated state. So then my sleep was affected, and like all of these things started to play into it. And yes, yeah. And the recovery <laughs> and the recovery is as slow and it's about those incremental small changes. Yeah, I think that's a good thing to remember because I was hoping that, you know, if I just had a holiday, everything would feel better. And yeah, it doesn't necessarily fix like that. And you've got to just make sure you put things into place to to just gently ease that burnout. Mm, thank you. OK, let's move on to the biggest obstacle, which brings us right back into the world of media, actually. Because I asked you what the biggest obstacle is that you've had to overcome. And you said, in my career, it's been entering an industry that was elitist in terms of race, appearance and class. And ding, ding, ding. I hear you, sister. Yes, I think there's a a lot of people who feel like that. And interestingly, I, I think there's people who, you know, you maybe think don't feel like that but they have you know I definitely have a beauty editor friend who you know felt like despite you know the fact that she maybe looks the part 
felt like she felt like she wasn't good enough or felt like she didn't she wasn't rich enough or so I think it's always worth remembering that you know it's that that phrase isn't it that someone's always fighting a battle you don't know about but largely speaking I think there are different levels of those battles and I think you know there's a lot of people who have who have a lot of battles to fight and a lot of barriers to push through and Mm. you know yeah that these things aren't necessarily comparable but yeah it's definitely worth thinking that you know not everyone is uh you know not everyone's having a great time but yeah it's it's you know I don't think we've had we've had interesting experiences as being part of this sort of very glossy glamorous world I think the thing that I found a few years ago when we really talked about this and I think bonded over this was the fact that both of us had been in environments in our childhood where we had felt out of place and we had been bullied for how we looked and yet the world that we then chose to enter was one that really did look like a world inhabited by the grown-up version of the people who had bullied us it was like what what are we doing and it's just like a therapist's dream to sort of have us two sit in front of them and go we hated these people they made us feel terrible and so in our adult lives we put ourselves into a situation that couldn't be more couldn't be more of a a, a mirror really of what we went through in childhood so it makes no sense to be drawn to it yeah yeah you would think that you know people would veer away from that and like want to not be around those people but I think for some of us you know it it probably is driven by a sense of wanting to fit in but mm. then also by a genuine love of that thing too and for me it was you know mm. it was writing about beauty and fashion and you know all of those things because and I also didn't think I also thought that my opinions and like my voice was valid and that I deserve like you know in some ways I, I deserve to be there it was hard to be there mm. but I knew that what I was saying was interesting and different and yeah yeah but I guess that doesn't necessarily detract from the fact that everything around you is telling you just as it did in childhood you know that you don't fit in and you're not okay and you're ugly and that will never change unless you change and how are you going to change all of those things about yourself are you going to bleach your skin are you gonna you know completely change your hair are you gonna half your body weight are you going to do that you know like those things are, are not always changeable things and they shouldn't be changeable things really um so yeah it's definitely yeah it's a very it's a very interesting complex topic but yeah I think it's interesting that yeah both of us have both ended up in that where we ended up where I don't know about you I mean uh both of us entered this industry and we've had this conversation as well in that I certainly can't imagine what your experience is like because even though we both were the girls with the complicated surnames who were brown skin I am lighter skinned and could pass if you like and we've had this conversation but both of us I think have the commonality of having surnames that cause endless discussion and you just want to walk into a room and say hi I'm Emma Gunnar Wardner and you don't want it to be a another 20 minute discussion about their trip to Sri Lanka or like, do you know what I mean? You just want to introduce yourself and be able to sit down like everyone else does. It's sort of almost, it's a silly thing, but that almost feels like a barrier once you're in the room. Yeah, definitely. I think, yeah, that it, that is a thing. I think it's, you know, it's interesting because I think people do end up sort of changing their names or shortening them or, you know, I quite often go by like, sometimes like a need to be, you know, like I use that because I'm like, I don't, can't be bothered to spell my name for everyone <laughs> you know there is a sense of that but yeah I guess I guess some people might see that as 
you know, hiding your ethnicity or, you know, like mm. trying to make yourself more palatable for a Western audience or, you know, like, you know, for the people that you're around. So it's, yeah, I think that sort of minimizing your ethnicity thing is a very common thing. It shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't have to do that. I and have no problem. Conscious. Yeah. yeah. I have no problem using my surname when I'm writing in media. Like, okay, I felt quite proud of the fact that there was this really quite obviously foreign name on a column every week and in, in one of the biggest selling magazines. And if I write for newspapers or magazines now, it doesn't even bother me. But when it comes to the podcast, I want it to be, as, I want there to be as little friction as possible to people. And I do worry that people will look at a podcast and see Emma Gunnar Wardner because they can't say the name. And yeah. because my, because my nickname is guns, like I call UAB like because I have that nickname, which it was a really easy thing to do, but I would be lying if I didn't say that if I really thought about it, it wasn't just about platforming my nickname. It was about hiding something else, making it easier yeah. for other people. Yeah, I absolutely get that. And the thing is, and this is the sad part of this is that, you know, there is a bias. We do have this, we do have a bias um, against things we don't know. And, you know, there've been multiple studies that have looked into this, but, you know, even like now, that bias is translated into tech, into sort of AI, because, mm -hmm. you know, even when someone applies for a job on say, like, you know, like a, a job website or whatever, AI is biased against, has been shown repeatedly to be biased against non-Caucasian, non-Western sounding names. So, you know, that bias that was, is intrinsic in people to go, oh yeah, I don't know that name. I don't know how to say it. Oh, panic. Or maybe it's an, you know, it's an ethnic name. Maybe that's, they're going to talk about ethnic things. That's not for me, you know, which I think is a big thing actually as well. Um, yeah. you know, that has now been translated into tech and into, you know, into people's lives and like hiring and stuff like that. And mm. yeah, there is that bias, you know, that it's, yeah, it's, it's really, it's hard because, you know, we do have to take the time to unwire those biases ourselves and because they, you know, sometimes they might be intrinsic. It might be a fear of something that's, you know, different, but often that is a cultural bias that, you know, we have been, we have been brought up with and, that's why we do have to take the time to go, oh, yeah, did I make a judgment about that name? Should mm -hmm. I have made a judgment about that name? Should I just ask that person how to say that name? Yeah. I don't. I, I never care when people ask how to pronounce my name. Sometimes I forget how to, how to pronounce my name, <laughs> if I'm totally honest. But, you know, like, it's never an issue. It, it, mm. It's never a source of, you know, yeah. outrage if someone says, how do, I, how do I say your name? I'd rather someone did that. Ex precisely. Exactly. Thank you for saying that. Um, I am curious though, and I say this again, because I'm bringing my experience into a little bit, into it a little bit, but when you were in the media, and let's just be really straight here, I had a, I had a great job, but it was not as uh, high profile or as influential as the jobs that you held in uh, beauty journalism. You had, you had jobs on really big, successful magazines, and mine was uh, a successful magazine, but not in the same league, if you like. Do you think that during your time on those magazines, you ever had a chip on your shoulder about where you had come from, what you looked like and the point of difference that you represented? Yeah, it's it's interesting because I guess it's like, how do you define a chip on your shoulder? Because is that, is it just something that's your fault for having that chip or is it something that is the result of society's bias? Because if I had a chip on my shoulder about, you know, not looking the part working on women's magazines that's not my fault you know that isn't my fault that is you know systemic racism that is elitism that's classism that's all of those factors you know that's lookism it's all of these factors that have created 
this sort of like armor that becomes a chip but that's not my fault you know it's it's my you know now I can see like it's mine it, it's it's my sort of chip to unpick at and to you know to then be able to reclaim those aspects of myself and like be, to be able to have some peace with the fact that I shouldn't have been made to feel like that and to have some anger at that but mm-hmm. yeah I don't think that we're always responsible for those chips in that way we're responsible for fixing them or trying our best to fix them for ourselves and to live happier lives but yeah I think I think chip is an interesting word because actually you know those things did exist those biases did exist Mm. yeah I think it's just it's interesting because uh, I would if I'm being really honest I think that I navigated the industry sort of earlier on thinking particularly when I was trying to move magazines and I couldn't I was like, oh, it's because I'm from a tabloid or it's because I don't fit the mold. And then you begin to sort of blame other people for those things that are working against you, where if you kind of look at it objectively, you could be like, maybe my application wasn't as strong as someone else's or any of those things. But I think for a while it was tempting to sort of blame external factors and not my own quality of work. Yeah, I mean, there probably is, you know, maybe there is an element of that. And I think that's, for each individual to kind of like think about, or, you know, maybe, maybe things weren't the right fit, but even that phrase, not the right fit. I think we have to be really careful of that because it does hire, it does hide a huge amount of, you know, some of humanity's worst, Mm -hmm. you know, afflictions, you know, racism and, you know, or like sexism or ageism. So I think we have to be very careful of those things. And to be honest, you know, I, I definitely, I was, I definitely had points where there were jobs I went for that I didn't get. And I was devastated. I, I got to the final two on quite a lot of jobs and mm-hmm. yeah, it's, I definitely was like, oh, it's, you know, I used to really beat myself up and I was like, maybe I'm not smart enough. Maybe I'm not clever enough. Maybe, you know, and then, and this isn't to, to do anyone down because we all come to things with different skill sets, but I eventually started to twig. I was like, this is not because I'm not a good enough writer. You know, this is not because of that. Because I had then seen these other people, you know, these other people's work, this, you know, to be totally honest. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, it's not because I'm not good enough. So there is something else at play here. And maybe, I don't know, maybe I didn't look the part, which again is also really problematic. Mm-hmm. Maybe I they thought I didn't have enough like contacts again, which is problematic because often contacts come from privilege, wealth mm-hmm. privilege most often. Um, so I did investigate all of those things, but after a while I just, I, I actually, and I, you know, I don't think this is a bad thing and I don't think this is an arrogant thing to, to say this, but I realized actually that sometimes I wasn't getting hired for jobs because I was too good. And that definitely has happened to me where I think the person hiring me probably felt threatened and that I, I know that that's happened, you know, like it, I do know that. And I think you can trust that knowing sometimes and not almost gaslight yourself into being like, oh, maybe it was something else. If you, you know, I think once you've been through enough, you can, you can recognize yeah. those situations. Um, and I also remember going for jobs where I came down to the final, there was one particular job that I thought was going to be the best job of my entire life. And I didn't get it. And I went down to the final two and the person that got the job, which is so, so different to me, like the polar opposite. And, you know, wasn't necessarily known for being a writer, you know, really looked the part of that title, you know, was, you know, fit all of those traditional, you know, 
things that you might expect of a beauty editor, you know, in terms of like class, in terms of like her appearance, you know, all of these things. And at some point, yeah, you've just got to go, yeah, that's not my fault. That's not my mm-hmm. fault that I don't look like that or I don't have those contacts. I wasn't born into that. And yeah, I don't know. I don't think we, I can't even remember what the start of our topic was. <laughs> I went on this giant rant. But yeah, I just, I don't think that is our fault. And mm. I think we can step back and go, yeah, that's why that happened. It's not fair. It's not cool. But actually, mm. I don't want to work for that place anyway. If they're going to treat me like that, if they value that over skill, over integrity, over talent, cool. That's you. That says a lot about you. And I guess the other thing to mention here is that, um, you and I both started. So I started in the early 2000s on London-based magazines, on big magazines. And that was about the same as you, right? Early 2000s? Um, you sort of like, yeah, I was sort of more like 2009, I moved to London, I think. Okay. So still quite a while ago. And I sometimes when this topic comes up and I've been asked to sit on panels about what it's like to be a POC in the in the magazine industry and I, I have to be honest Anita I, I personally never really feel I can because regardless of anything like we still we had those seats at the table so it feels weird to sort of call it out because we were evidence that it wasn't discriminating because if it if they were there's no way I would have got my job yeah, but I think I think it's the fact that there was only ever usually one mm. person of colour in an office. And that was the case for quite a few of the jobs that I, I you know, I had. Mm. It might have been one other person, but, you know, generally speaking, you were definitely a minority. And I knew you were going to say that, and it was reminding me of that speech in the morning show where uh, Jennifer Aniston says, I should have called this out, but I didn't because I was successful. And so when I was kind of creating my defence to that, I was like, but that's probably actually what was really going on. Why would I call it out when I was there? I didn't want to jeopardize the position yeah. I was in. I think there is that. I think there is a difference though, because I think you are made to feel like you should be very, you should be, if you are a person of color, if you are different in any way, you should be very, very grateful to have that job. Mm-hmm. I know that I was explicitly meant to made to feel that way. And I was actually told that once as well. What? And yeah, which is wild, wild. <laughs> Um, that is wild and yeah you are you are you know you have been let into this it's almost like you've been given access you've been let in to this very elite world that you know you don't look like you fit into um that maybe doesn't necessarily want you and at any point that door can be shut and you can be shut out so there is I think there is a level of jeopardy that maybe Jennifer Aniston you know in the morning show doesn't have right but yeah I think I think there is that Um, But then on the flip side of that, I definitely, you know, I tried to set up schemes to like, you know, pay for interns from underprivileged backgrounds or, you know, minority backgrounds to come into the industry. But it is so so hard because, you know, I, yeah, I don't know. I felt like I was fighting that constantly, but nobody else wanted to help me do that. The companies I worked in didn't want to help me do that. The, you know, when I tried to fundraise money to do those things, like no beauty brands wanted to help me do that. So, yeah, I don't know. I tried really hard to try and open those doors for other people. And I, you know, I, I really actively hired people who didn't fit the mold when I had the chances to. And yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, it's, it's a really tough one. It's a really mm-hmm. tough one. I, yeah, I did try and do what I could, but you know, quite often you are just trying to survive as well. So there that's really, that. really tough. 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm going to jump ahead actually to another answer that you gave because it, I think it ties into this, which is like, tell me about a time when you were wrong, which is one of my favorite questions I ask my guests. And you actually talked about not being a great judge of character at times. And you said that you've made some poor friend decisions when you were younger. And also, and this is why it leads into this really nicely, is when hiring. And you said the words you used were, I've fallen for the facade. I tend to take people on face value too much. I'm a bit too trusting. And again, you say like a golden retriever, which you've already mentioned. And I just thought, and I really identify with that answer. And I thought, how funny that two people who have had the experiences that we've had, who felt othered, who felt like we didn't fit in, have fallen for it and have um, valued the facade and sort of fallen fallen for the facade, basically. Yeah, this is really fascinating, I think. And yeah, the friendship thing. Yeah, I, yeah, it's that's really tricky. I definitely know when I was younger that, you know, if the most popular girl wanted to be friends with me, et cetera. I'd be like, so like, oh my God, you know, you feel like the chosen special one. And I think for me then quite often they would just move on to the next person. And like, you know, there are, there are people that do that. Mm. And I used to feel really devastating for me because I felt like I'd been dropped. It felt like it, you know, that was my fault. And, you know, it felt very personal. So I think that's quite an interesting thing because I do think a lot of us have those experiences growing up, particularly if we don't feel like we fit in. I think that's an extra level of like, you know, acceptance that we're looking to gain. And then when that's taken away, it feels very devastating and very like shocking and very like wounding to our self-esteem. Mm-hmm. 100%. Um, but then I think it's, yeah, I, I think what's really interesting and I do have a chapter on this in the book and it, it is, it's an area that I'm so, so fascinated with is, you know, is the idea of, you know, looks privilege and pretty privilege and, you know, how that can affect everything in our lives from like, you know, who we're swiping on on dating apps to, you know, how we engage with a stranger on the street or who we hire, you know, so, the, you know, it's not even just a light subject. This it has the potential to really affect people's entire entire lives. Mm. And it is it is really fascinating that we, you know, there is this so many studies that sort of say that, you know, this statistically, this kind of person will be hired more than this person. And, you know, and that it pertains to everything from like hair color to height to like whether you're married. You know, there are some studies to say that if you're married, you will be paid more. And there are all these like really, really different, interesting nuances around, you know, like, you know, looks and what we associate with that. And I have to say there was one instance where I did hire someone. And I think in hindsight, and this is really hard to admit for me because I've always tried to pride myself on being someone who is quite conscious of these things. But I can categorically say I definitely fell for the way that maybe someone came across the way that they looked and what the, I assumed, the, the, I guess the the sort of attributes that I assumed they had because of the way they looked when actually then when I worked with them, they didn't have those attributes. So that is very interesting. And I've had to really think about that and unpick it. And yeah, I, it was a big, you know, when I was writing the book, I, I was really conscious of it because I think we do, you know, unfairly give people credit that is unearned and 
mean, that's what that's why people are so you know it's a really emotive topic because because you know because of that you know that some people get by easier in life because of the way they look and it's not fair and we do have to start looking at it as a society we can't just sort of say you know it's it's all right you know they're just they they fit the beauty standard and that's fine you know they're just going to get on better in life we have to really unpick that because of what is underneath that which is you know is like colorism is racism is you know I've made this word up heightism you know it's like all of these you know which you know particularly pertains to men and you know it's it's you know it's it's fat phobia it's all of these different things that stem from very very you know toxic places in in places in history we do have to unpick it it's not it's not a case of going they just look great so they got that job they look the part you know it's not that so yeah Yeah. it's very passionate about this topic as you can tell well it's (laughs) so interesting I was talking about you I brought this topic up actually the other night because I was watching reality TV with a friend. We're basically experiencing experiencing our Super Bowl at the moment. Anyone who watches Vanderpump Rules will know. Anita, we don't know if you're you're a housewives but you're not a Vanderpump Rulesa. Yeah, I yeah, I love housewives, but yeah, I haven't managed to cross over. Okay, well, there is still time. <laughs> but basically, there is somebody in this particular uh, TV show who is so handsome. And actually my friend was at a party he was at last week and was like, I wish I could tell you that he's awful, but he's so beautiful. He's really tall. He just looks like you just want to get near him and he's really tactile. But he, he's he got nothing else really going on. He's kind of a dimwit in the nicest possible way. And yet he's in this group of narcissists who are all appearance-based. And the only reason he's in that group is because of the flesh suit he's wearing. Because if he didn't have that, He's a really good study in if he looked different and wasn't really beautiful, they, they wouldn't give him the time of day. Yeah. So it's interesting because, you know, although I've sort of talked about pretty privilege in that way, you know, it can work against you as well. You know, there are like, you know, people might just assume that he's dumb, like, you know, you know, or like, you know, if there is someone who is very, very conventionally, very attractive, people might just assume there's nothing more to them mm. or that, you know, everything in their life has been okay. You know, when, you know, there might be there might be loads of things that have gone wrong for them and we just don't know about it. Or, you know, it, yeah, it's such a nuanced, interesting topic, very complex. But yeah, I, yeah, it's it's really tricky because, you don't. yeah, it's I do think it's wrong to say, you know, if you are attractive, everything in your life has been OK. But on the flip side of that, if you are attractive, you do get more benefits in society there's less friction you go up and you ask the barista for a free coffee and then you get it yeah stupid things like that yeah there was that whole tiktok thread um i think it was probably last year that was sort of there were loads of people saying that they had pretty privilege and all the free things they'd gotten and all the benefits and then there were people that were saying they had i think they called it mediocre pretty privilege where they were sort of just acceptable by society standards (laughs) and you know they were getting free things too and that made me really think I mean, it was very interesting as well because, you know, my book is called Ugly. And I was like, mm-hmm. right, it's okay. So if you're mediocre, you're fine. If you're pretty, you're fine. So then what happens if society decides you are not pretty or mediocre? Like, where do you fit into this? Like, if you're not getting these privileges, then you're being disadvantaged, actually. And that's why we need to rethink this whole idea of what's attractive. Mm. Well, you said um, that you were editing the book. You're making edits up until half an hour before it was uh, sent to print. But the book is finished now. Um, it's out, and the link obviously will be in the show notes. But what was the thing that you uncovered 
and I'm sure there's like a dozen, but let's just choose one. What was the thing that you uncovered during your research, which as we know now is like pretty forensic, that was the most either surprising or shocking to you or just something that you weren't expecting to uncover? Yeah, there were so many light bulb moments. I thought I knew, I've always been very geeky about like beauty and social history and stuff like that. And if anyone follows me on Instagram, I post a lot of very geeky history stuff. Um, but I think the thing for me, and, and this is one of those things I sort of knew a bit about, but I didn't realize how deep it went. But um, I've always struggled with my weight. I've always been overweight. It's always been, well, not even overweight. I've always just struggled with, you know, my body size. And growing up in sort of the 90s, et cetera, that was obviously very difficult because of, you know, size zero and, you know, that, you know, that heroin chic thing, you know, the only way to be was thin and everyone who wasn't thin was expected to be trying to be thin. That was very much the assumed thing in sort of Western culture. Yeah. And it's very hard to shake that. And I will say as well, um, like it's really hard to shake those beliefs. And I, I think we need to be gentler on people who can't shake those things, um, especially in our body positivity era, you, you know, it's very hard to just, you know, click your fingers and be like, you're fixed now. You can, you can wear a bikini. You can feel okay about yourself. That doesn't work like that. I don't think it works like that. I think it's very glib to say that because that's so much unwiring you have to do to get to that place. And it doesn't work for everyone. Mm. But um, I think the thing that really shocked me and was a real light bulb moment and was a real turning point. And yeah, if anyone is struggling with it, you know, with body size, I would urge them to like, you know, even if you buy the book, just read that chapter and then see if there's anything else that takes your interest. Because I know for a fact, so many people have said this has really changed their lives, but it is, it's the idea of where fat came from, because there are different points in history where fat is a good thing. And to be bigger, to have body fat, to have a reserve is a good thing. And that is fascinating in itself because, you know, for me, I was like, okay, so at some points this was a good thing. So when did this change? You know, when when did fat become demonized? When did, you know, fat become being associated with being lazy and slovenly? And, you know, when did fat people become othered? And there is a point in history, sort of roughly in the sort of 1800s, where the descriptions of so this was in an, so this is in sort of Western literature in an era where, you know, colonization was widespread. There is a point in various literature, in, you know, different paintings, in lots of different disciplines where descriptions of people in colonies, you know, they change from being sort of like curious and like, oh, look at their hair or look at their body shapes. They do this to being very, very negative. There is a real switch. And that switch comes about in a time when um, generally like definitions of what is beautiful were being discussed in sort of literature and there are, there are different thought leaders who basically sort of say the way to be beautiful is to be thin and is to be white. And that sets us, that sets like, you know, the colonizers aside from everyone else. So if we all, you know, if we, we are all thin, we're all white, we all look a certain way. That means the others are, you know, they're not as beautiful. There seemed to be a real need to, to want to distinguish that. And this is at the same point, this is where dieting becomes much more of a thing as well so that starts to feed into it and there are various sort of like upper class white doctors and men who decide that is a thing that people should be dieting etc and then the thinness for women and that being the way that women look beautiful and it was very much you know it was really more focused on women that that started to become 
very popular around uh, among the sort of white upper classes. And then obviously they lead the charge with all, you know, the fashion trends and the beauty trends, and then that starts to filter down. So that is where that comes from. So I think, I think if more of us knew that where that desire for us to want to be thin, to want to like be a certain body shape comes from, comes from a history of racism. And, you know, where that, that is where that fat phobia largely originates from. I think it would make us go, wow. Wow. And it would make us go easier on ourselves. It's not to shame anyone. Mm-hmm. It's, it's to make us think, yeah, that is not an intrinsic thing. We don't intrinsically want to be thinner or smaller. That comes from a cultural and historic bias that was created by colonizers. And I think if we remember that and we think about that, it just, it, it, I hope for people it will alleviate, you know, that like, you know, I think, and I know that I've experienced this in, in my life is that when you, you know, when you think you are, you, you're not, you know, you are too big, it can take over your entire life. It can stop you going on holidays. It can stop you wearing what you want to wear. It can stop you having relationships. It can stop so much. So if you can give yourself a little bit of a break by just knowing that, mm-hmm. I think that's really important. That was the thing that made me just go, wow. And it also made me go, do you know what? I don't buy into this. I don't buy into this. And that's where we can start to redefine our own standards for ourselves away from everything else about what beautiful is, what healthy is, you know, what attractive is. Mm. That's such a good point. Understanding that allows you to take that focus off and then you can begin to sort of focus on, well, how do I really feel? Forget about fitting in or trying to become something that I think I'm supposed to look like. How, what do I, what do I want? Which is different from what does society think I should be? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And you can make those decisions for yourself. And yeah, that was a real turning point for me. And it's it's very heavy and it's quite hard to sit with. And there's some amazing, there's a really great book on it, which um, uh, it's called Fearing the Black Body, which is really, really good and very interesting. And yeah, it was, I just think if we knew these truths and if they were out in society more, then we would feel better about ourselves. But then on the flip side of that, the wellness industry, the diet industry doesn't want us to know those things because, you know. How would it well, make its money? I feel like that's changing as well. And I, I'm really cynical in the sense that I do think that a lot of, this is a nuanced argument and there are lots of different things and I'm picking out a very specific channel here in a, in a much wider argument. But just in isolation, for me, the uh, broadening, particularly in wellness amongst uh, particularly active wear brands, catering for plus size women, that's completely appropriate and should have been happening since day dot. It's terrible that it was excluding to uh, a large portion of the population. But I honestly think that one of the reasons why fashion brands have opened up their sizing is because they realize that they realize there's money to be made. It's not about making a positive cultural change or accepting a portion of society who previously didn't feel accepted. It's like, oh, these people have money because if you unpick it a little bit, like there are plus size female mannequins for sports, but you do not, you, there are no plus size mannequins for children or men, or it's much, yeah. it's a much smaller proportion. So it's like, as much as it feels great and it feels empowering, I sort of, I, the cynic in me goes, but you also know that you are missing out on their cash and now you're not. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's definitely a thing. And, you know, we, you know, the evidence of that is that there are lots of brands that don't do that on the flip side. And, mm-hmm. I'm going to call them out because I feel like it is insane in this day and age that this doesn't happen. But All Saints, I actually really like All Saints clothes because they kind of sort of fit in with my aesthetic a little bit. 
I don't think they really go above a size 14 or 16, which yeah. is outrageous for a high street shop in this day and age. Don't understand it. Zara as well. What are you doing? No plus size, no, not really any plus size clothes. And what, what those brands are saying as well is, is so, you know, they would never admit to this. But what they are saying is that we don't want these people in our club. We don't believe this is beautiful. We're not going to cater to them. That is really what they're saying. So again, you know, that's where we then have the the choice to say, do we agree with that? Do we want to give those people our money? Mm. Or is it because the manufacturing that would have to take place, the extra cost isn't worth it as far as they're concerned because they're making so much money already? Yeah, it's potentially that too. But there will there will come a point where their profits dip and then they will go, oh, let's do a plus size range. You know, oh, it's, yeah. the same, it's the same with beauty. You know, nobody cared about doing foundation or whatever for skin of color until it became more of a social issue before, you know, people got a voice on, on Twitter, et cetera. But nobody cared until they realized there was money to be made. And there was this whole, you know, demographic they could cater to that Mac had probably much, pretty much exclusively had, I think really in the UK before, you know, Fenty, before anyone else started, you know, doing what they did. And Fenty is different because, you know, that is a, you know, that's a black owned brand, but you know, all the other brands that had never cared about doing anything for women of color, all of a sudden we're like, Oh yeah, look, women of color spend loads of money on products. We can like have a part of that market. And I think we've got to be honest about that. That is the motivation quite often. I've had Charlotte Mentzer on the podcast and I've also had uh, Loretta from Diziac on the podcast. And when they talk about finding beauty products or how they used to shop for products specifically for hair, it was like, it was like some sort of expedition. It was like going to a particular shop on this one road and having to travel for the idea that the things that you needed were so inaccessible was something that really opened my eyes. Cause I mean, I've, I've never struggled to find anything that I've needed on the high street. And so to understand that actually for so many people, there's been this huge friction to be able to just get like something to be able to wash their hair with that will make it feel the way that they want. Or any, I, I really hadn't understood that experience until a few years ago. I think that experience doesn't always leave you as well. I think mm-hmm. that's the thing. So yeah, I, I don't have the same experience with hair, but I definitely couldn't get any sort of foundations or anything for my skin tone. So I would end up using much lighter things, which looked awful, like looked like a mask. Um, or I would try and mix things to make my own. And, you know, that's not that's quite like you know, that's something that affects you when you're a teenager and like had very oily skin. And like I was always trying to cover it, but I couldn't cover it because I didn't have the products. And I, don't, I think it was probably when I was like 17 or 18 when I actually got a product that matched my skin tone. Mm. And then you realize how easy life can be. Where you just put on your, where you put on your makeup and have to think about it. You're like, oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. And like, you know, there are people having that experience. You're like, wow. Yeah. Amazing. You have that experience every single day. It's like me with my hair loss. My mornings used to be about, right, am I washing my hair today? If I am, is the right brush in the shower? Are all the right products that I need? I need to at least have 75 minutes to be able to style it, part it, do, and like, it was a real consideration and now what um, working with a trichologist means is I don't have any of that in the morning. I don't even have to think about it. I just wash my hair like a quote unquote normal person. And you don't realize how much you have to think about it before until you don't. Yeah, that's true. I, yeah, it's it's interesting, isn't it? I think, I think there is definitely, I think, you know, I mentioned this in the book, but I do think 
and I think hair loss is a slightly different one, not that it's more niche because I know a lot of people go through it. But I think if we look at those bigger systemic issues, we do need to notice who isn't being catered for in a room, you know, whether that is going into, so, you know, this is something I work on a lot as, you know, part of my work. I'm, I, I'm beauty director at Condé Nast Traveller and I, you know, I'm part-time there. And one of the thing I, things I always look for when I go and visit spas is, you know, is this access, you know, is the spa accessible to wheelchairs or to people with, you know, disabilities? Is it, you know, is there a pool hoist? Are there all these different things that really make it okay for people, you know, to, for all people to enjoy this facility? And I think that's a really good sort of mindset to have is like, you know, even when we are just, and I'm not saying we have to like do this all the time, but to have a consciousness of like, who's in the room when we walk into that room and that room can be metaphorical too. So, you know, if you walk into a shop and there are no plus size clothes, that's interesting. It's something to just note and to think about. And then if you want to take that step further in sort of terms of solidarity and, you know, activism, it's just, you know, sending a tweet, sending an email and being, you know, even if you are a straight size person who can walk into every shop and get clothes and being like, it's not cool that you don't have plus size clothes. I've noticed that, you know, and that is, you know, it's a similar approach to, you know, if you are not a person of colour, um, you know, looking around those rooms and being like, oh, OK, yeah, I'm going to notice that. I'm going to, you know, push for, you know, to have more diversity initiatives. You know, it, it's that similar approach to just almost just having a little bit more care for other people who don't have access to those spaces or and who should. So yeah. I definitely think, you know, I know it's really hard to do all the time, but I think it's definitely something that would be good to cultivate in society for sure. Agreed. We are hurtling towards the end of our time together. So I'm going to pick mm. my last question for you. And I think it's probably uh, because it's fitting with everything that we've spoken about. I'm going to ask you about regrets because you said you have quite a few regrets, but the one you've uh, talked about, I'm now going to look at your other questions and be like, no, I want to look at, I want to ask about that. But the regret you said was, I think the biggest regret was how much of my life I have spent feeling ugly fat, unpretty, not acceptable looking enough. And now after writing my book, I realize how much of those beauty standards are rooted in really awful things like classism and racism. And I'm sad they defined me from for so long. Has writing the book given you peace on that regret in any way? It has, yes. I think it hasn't fixed everything because I don't think we fix everything in, you know, it, I you know, these issues are so woven into so many parts of our lives that it's very hard to just flip a switch and to have everything be like, you know, roses. It it doesn't, life doesn't work like that, which is why I do find, you know, there was something on Queer Eye the other day, and obviously I love that show to pieces and I think they're amazing, but there was a bit where Karamo like gets someone to like break a mirror or something like that. And I can't remember, he's got something written on it and like, she's like breaking her like, you know, the the things she didn't like about herself or whatever. And I was just like, oh, I get that. I get that as a nice gesture and a nice thing to do, but that does not fix mm. the way that someone feels about themselves. You know, like it doesn't fix it. So yeah, I guess for me, it's always going to be a journey, I think probably, um, but I feel much more at peace. I, and it, the thing, and this is the whole reason I wrote the book was because I had had so much therapy. I have literally tried every kind of therapy to try and fix these things and to try and feel you know, amazing about myself or good, or even just neutral about myself, which is how I feel now. It feels fairly neutral. Um, but I couldn't push, you know, I couldn't get to those, I couldn't get past some of those things and they were still causing me issues. And 
I think I just wanted to delve beyond the sort of like, just rewire your thinking to actually going, okay, why do I actually think this in the first place? Mm. Who decided that this was, you know, where did this come from? And that to me has been definitely been a real shift. I think that's the biggest lie that we are sold. And it's one that I perpetuated in my role on magazines. And I'm sure you'd probably say perhaps similar, particularly in your time on a health magazine. But the idea that you can flip a switch or learn a new piece of information and then all factory settings are changed forever and you will never have to worry about that thing again. If there's one thing that time and age have taught me, it's that if you want to make a change, it's so possible, but it's not going to happen overnight. It's about consistent effort over time equaling results. And that means that it just has to become part of you. It can't be something that you do for a short period and you elicit the results. It's not like a cosmetic surgery where the surgeon does the work and then boom, you have a new nose, new boobs, whatever it might be moving forward. If you want the change, you kind of have to do a little bit of work on it every single day and that work will get easier over time. Yeah, definitely. I I think that is definitely right. And it is, I think it's like a mix of different disciplines. So yeah, it's great to have like the CBT or whatever or, you you know, whatever therapy is that you want. But then it's like looking at the other things. And I think if you, that a wide approach can really help to sort mm-hmm. of, you know, even come to a place where you feel neutral. If you do walk into a room these days, and I've walked into a lot of the same rooms as you. So if you walk into a room and you've got, say, a lot of very traditional looking beauty editor types sitting there and you walk in and you're the only person who looks like you, do you feel neutral now? Or do you think there is still a little bit of a bristle of... Do you have to sort of just do that little fire up that engine to go, I deserve to be here too. I'm just as good as these people. Um, Yeah, there's probably maybe a small element of that. Yeah, I think it's really hard to shift that. I think it's much less debilitating than it used to feel. Like it used to make me feel very small and very crushed. But now I'm like, okay, that's interesting. So I just try and like notice it and notice that I feel like that a little bit and yeah, I think I think now I'm I'm at the point where I care a lot less. So I, yeah, it doesn't feel as bad as it used to. But yeah, it definitely I still notice those things. But then I I feel I would feel that if I walked into a room and I was the only person of color or mm. you know whatever it happened to be. So yeah. yeah. Um, I didn't get to ask you about everything, but there is something I want to mention because in one of your answers, you talked about the fact that you've accepted that you're you can now say with confidence after all of those years of feeling insecure you can now say that you're a brilliant writer and I can tell you that having been in the industry for as long as I have and whenever I've heard your name the thing that comes after mentioning Anita Bagwandas is she's such a brilliant writer there is not a single person in this industry who hasn't made that observation that I've spoken to about you who hasn't made that observation so I'm just really pleased that you know it and it doesn't actually require other people saying it to you for you to believe it because you know it in your heart yeah, I mean, I'm definitely still coming to terms with it. Like, I still find it hard. Like, interesting, when you just said that, I started to whirl up a little I bit. I know. I got really worried. <laughs> I know. I was like, oh. So I definitely still have quite a visceral reaction to things like that. But I am starting to try and own that a bit more. And that even if something is not perfect, that actually is still a great piece of writing. And I think, so this is, you know, I think what's been interesting is that I have seen people who are maybe sort of, you know, like good writers, average writers, maybe below average writers, like, you know, like a whole, like a whole variety. And they are still putting work out there. Mm-hmm. They still think they're really good writers and great. They, you know, they should, because it's, 
what is a good writer for me is not a good writer for someone else. You know, that that's very subjective. Um, but I deserve to feel as good about my writing as anyone else should. So mm-hmm. I think that is the sort of place I, I feel like I'm coming at it from. But yeah, I do still have, you know, I, yeah, I definitely still have a reaction when people give me like praise or compliments because it, I think because it feels so unnatural to have given like for so many years to have not, you know, I've given myself the opposite of that for so many years. Mm. When you get it externally, it can feel quite like, like good. Not, it's not a bad feeling, but it, it does feel emotional. Yeah. I kind of wanted to speak to you about this as well, because I think you and I've had different experiences because you have received that external validation from your industry. And I, I never have. And so if ever I did get asked to do anything, I'd be like, Oh my God, this is such a big deal. And I'd, get up on stage and my heart would be racing and it would mean so much to me but I actually it was I I never I never got what I wanted from it and so actually a little while ago I was talking to a friend the other day and I said for such a long time I've just wanted people to like give me an award or tell me that my podcast is amazing or like I don't know get picked out of the crowd not get picked last and I have decided to embrace bumbling below the level of relevance, the line of relevance, and to be really happy with that. Because for some people, they're going to get lauded and applauded. And I think I've just sort of like, if I keep wanting that for me, it's just going to keep hurting me. So I've just decided, yeah. I, so I've trained myself to not want it. I realize how depressing that sounds. See, please say something constructive, Anita. Yeah. Do you know what? I, this is really fascinating. Um, because I don't, th- I actually think that's probably a better place to be in. But yeah, I would almost say it's, I think it's almost being with things being, like almost being okay with things not being perfect or exactly as you thought they were going to be. It mm-hmm. might be something else. And then if something great happens, then awesome, that's a bonus. But if not, you'll find where you are. And I think that's a good space to be in. I know that I went through a phase where I was so desperately trying to prove myself in one of my jobs. I won like 10 awards in like two years or something ridiculous. And I was really going for it. And then there was, there was something where I didn't win an award. I was, I was furious, <laughs> really outraged. I was very entitled about it. And I was like, well, my piece was better. I like, it was re- I was really like a real dickhead about it, to be honest. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I don't know. It just made me think, oh, my God, I've put all my self-esteem into other people's, like, praise and accolades. And I definitely have an issue with that. Like, I, I know that, yeah. you know. And, yeah, there was a point, like, I think it was probably, like, when I went freelance where I was like, I don't really care about awards. I'm, like, because it doesn't really matter, actually. I think it matters a lot less if you're freelance. It seems to matter mm. a lot when you're on staff because it sort of proves that you're, like, worth keeping, basically. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah I just thought I was like I don't need the external validation anymore I don't need don't need that Mm. so I actually sort of really stopped applying for awards and stuff because I was like I don't really give a fuck to be honest I just don't worry for um (laughs) I don't really I don't care Mm. don't need the validation but I know there have been points in my life where I've really craved it Mm. and part of that is human nature so it's it's hard but I think I think some of us crave it more than others so it's definitely something to be aware of and I think it's the same with like going for things you know yeah I've always set my always set my standards so so high but then when you you don't meet those or you know external factors mean that you don't meet those then it's really hard on you and it feels like your whole world is crumbling and Mm -hmm. so then to sort of tread a more gentle more medium line is not a bad thing but also to you know 
be open to the fact that that something amazing could happen I think is probably the sweet spot but yeah it's a, yeah. It's a hard place to get to I'm definitely not there but yeah, yeah. I remember <laughs> someone talking about acting and just sort of saying um like all the big Hollywood stars this was years and years and years ago and I don't know who to attribute this quote to but it was something like it was when Tom Cruise was really at his peak like that you just could not move for Tom Cruise and he talked about loving acting and someone said if you really love acting then you do it on the stage where you could walk down the street go to a local, local supermarket and no one knew who you were if you loved acting you wouldn't need to do it at that level so I just sort of I sort of tried to come back to that it's like I really love what I do so do I care if like if I go out with my friends and people walk past them on the street and ask me to, to take a picture of them. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't mind that anymore, but for a while it really hurt my ego. And I thought, well, I need to get that in check because if I don't, that's just something I'm doing that's going to keep hurting me. And so I kind of, but it, but it was work. It is work. Yeah. It's, it's really hard. It's really hard. I, you know, it's that thing, isn't it? Where life is not fair. And so it's been interesting writing a book and like learning about the whole publishing process and stuff like that. Mm. And, you know, when you start a book, you're like, in your head it's going to be a Sunday Times bestseller and then you like you know when it isn't or you know you're like oh I'm a complete failure and I've definitely had moments of that during this process I will be fully honest it's been a really like a, a real learning curve because it's a new industry to me yeah um but then you sort of look you know that's actually not the thing that matters and I had to have really have this stuck I've got it stuck on my desk actually and the the reason I wrote the book was to I was like even if I change five people's opinions about themselves that's great and you know I've, I've already know that I've smashed that because of the messages that I received and like the reviews on Amazon and you know all of that and what people have fed back to me so I already know that I've smashed that so anything else now is a bonus so I it but it's really hard when you see what other people put on social media and they're like my book's done so well and blah 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 but I think yeah we have to you have to it's that thing of like keeping your eyes on your own journey which is really hard it's really hard and um, particularly if you have to use social media, et cetera, for work, it's really hard. Mm. And things don't always feel fair. And like quite often they're not. And I think in particular sort of with the Sunday Times bestseller thing, it's been a real eye-opening journey to talk to other authors. And I will say Emma Gannon has written, writes, has written about this a few times on her Substack, which has been really interesting. And, you know, it is the idea that we are sort of, everyone is aspiring to have this Sunday Times bestseller, but actually what it entails to get a bestseller is not often spoken about. So quite often, you know, that person is a celebrity or they've got loads of celebrity high profile friends who, you know, who will post about their books. So then they get loads of sales. That's a big thing. So mm -hmm. the connections, you know, often that comes with privilege again, you know, like we've spoken about, um, you know, it might be the case that they've got loads of money and they can buy a giant amount of books or they can get their friends to buy a giant amount of books. And that is a thing that happens too. These are things that like, I had no idea about these things. Like I was so like, not naive, but just like, I don't know. I just wouldn't have well, thought just, that was happening. Like, you wouldn't I know it until you know idea. it. Yeah. So like, you know, I wish I'd known that earlier because I wouldn't have even entertained that because I don't have those things, you know, like I don't have those things. So, you know, on the flip side of that, there are the people that get those things organically, but I think they are much more in the minority than the people, yeah. you know. So, yeah, it's, yeah, it's very, yeah, it's been an interesting learning curve. I think it's clear I could talk to you another for another four hours, but we'll just have to do another <laughs> lunch. And, uh, but it's been so nice to chat and thank you for sharing your life lessons. And I think it's been, um, been really valuable to really understand some of the key learnings for you from the book because it's an incredible piece of work when you sent me that sample chapter you were like could you cast your eyes over this I was like how I mean how has she written all these chapters it was so forensic and so well written and just um don't cry I won't really <laughs> I just start to do it again 
Uh, to be fair, I do also have PMT at the moment, so maybe it's that. But <laughs> um, and also the moon is like I've not been sleeping. The moon, and I hate to I hate to blame things on the moon, but definitely always the moon, always the moon. <laughs> um, but it has been a joy to chat to you again. Thanks, Anita. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to that episode of the Emma Gunn Show. I do hope you enjoyed it. I appreciate your time hugely. If you did enjoy it and you never want to miss an episode then please do hit the subscribe button wherever it is that you are streaming and downloading this episode. It's also where you get the opportunity to leave a five-star review and a rating for how you feel about the show. And I'd be so grateful if you wouldn't mind leaving one. If you want to get in touch with me, email me at thebeautypodcast at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. Or you can DM me on Instagram and Twitter where I am at Emma Guns. If you fancy chatting to me and thousands of other fellow listeners of the podcast, then click the link to join the Facebook forum. The link to join is in the show notes, which can be found wherever it is that you are streaming and downloading this episode. You have to answer a couple of questions, but we cannot wait to see you there. Come over and join the conversation. Thank you so much for listening. I will see you on the next one. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.